0: everybody welcome to shitty book reports where the reports are shitty but the books are not i'm mark i'm here with trevor how are you feeling today trevor
1: i feel pretty good i feel like i'm floating on fresh air how are you nice. feeling
0: terry gross i feel <laughs> like jacob's stepladder and don't ask me to explain anything it just sounded i was, I was gonna say
1: bad. I was going to say, remind me of the reference, but I don't. Jacob's Ladder is, I, I forget nah, what that even means. Watch
0: the movie. <laughs> devastating. Jacob's Stepladder.
1: All right. So you're almost to complete devastation. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, don't very have possible. too much
0: to uh, expand on that. But um, yeah, so I i told you about what hmm. I wanted to do for the intro this week um, right
1: you've given me just, a list of things that I am supposed to come prepared with but I don't know anything yeah. else
0: and, and so this week I, I just thought we could you know show some love to the books that we have because we you know we have a, a whole collection Every like book lovers they have a you know a big collection of random books uh you know there's but they're not all traditional novels you have coffee table books you have educational textbooks you know ones you couldn't get yourself to throw away or no one would buy them Mm. Uh, and you you know, swear you're going to open them again someday. Right. Uh, you know, there's books of photography, um, random facts, you know, stuff like uh, what else was I thinking of? Bathroom readers, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of random stuff that's either just for reference or just, you know, I thought it was cool to have. And I don't have a coffee table in my apartment, but I have a lot of books that could go on.
1: Right. Who even has a coffee table. table anymore? Really? I mean, it's like, it's like a thing that it's almost like a bygone. I haven't had a coffee table in a while.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you need a lot of space. You need a lot of space. I have my couch and yeah. Maybe
1: a coffee table is emblematic of, uh, exiting the millennial or like post-grad lifestyle. Once you have that coffee table, that's like a, you know, it's a mark of success.
0: So it's like actually, brought, it's like
1: having a frame for your bed after college.
0: It's like no longer yeah. a mattress on the floor. <laughs> I have a am in the headboard club. Mm. Uh, so, I brought I think five. I think about six things actually. I brought six books with me that I want okay. to talk about. Uh, so I'll, I'll kick it off. I have uh, so it's something I found a, a long time ago, and I've you know I've had it forever. I found this this four book collection called how things work. And, you know, you can just tell what it is based on what I just said, but beyond just being like a cool book to leaf through, it's the sort of thing you'd want to have. If you either like a went back in time, you know, (laughs) or B survived the apocalypse. Like it has so much knowledge in it of it's an explainer for all these different technologies and all these different industrial processes. And it like Mm -hmm. gives you um a lot of facts about them and like schematics and you know even steps like how to do some some stuff like that sounds uh, like
1: just, uh that sounds like the like a, a cheat book for what would you bring to a desert island
0: yeah yeah you could you know if you could develop <laughs> if you could yeah i would out. bring
1: how things work so i could make an iphone out of a coconut
0: <laughs> yeah no but the, okay the cool part about these though is they were made in the 70s so like a lot of the same a lot of the things hold true mm-hmm. like it doesn't tell you about it will tell you how to like you know how television works but not like a microprocessor or whatever like you can figure out how a clock works but you wouldn't get to like a smartphone it's kind of like a a good right. spot in in, in the, history you know advance of technology or we weren't so messed up uh having all this stuff but um let me just read real quick like i have the first book here Table of contents, you got a distillation, uh, a centrifuge, uh, fire extinguishers, dry ice, Hmm. uh, petroleum distillation, natural gas, nuclear reactor. um, A nuclear reactor? (laughs) Yeah. Is this book legal? (laughs) I don't know if that one goes into as much detail, but it's like, you know, textbook level stuff. Magic Eye, it explains Magic Eye if you want to recreate that on a desert island. Black and white television, mirrors, telescopes, color printing, and you know, it goes on and on. And there's a nice. big four book set, it's awesome. What do you got?
1: I feel like that's like that's the type of book that you immediately whip out to prove someone wrong. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, really? Carburetors, that's how they work? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. My first two books are kind of like slightly, I feel like in my mind, they're almost related to each other. I can talk about them a little bit like separately, but they definitely belong to the genre of um, like basically you and I have always been massive book hogs, right? Like it it almost itches me to walk past a bookstore and not go in, you know, if you don't have enough time or...
0: Yeah, for better or worse.
1: Yeah, for better or for worse. But... I feel like I've, I'm have i always collecting novels. I'm always definitely collecting used books and the type of books that I'm going to read. But I've always known in the back of my mind that I will also – we talked about the coffee table as a mark of success. But I also hold the coffee table book and, by extension, the art book, like photo books and art and paint books – as like an extension of that, where basically I like one of my like older age fantasies is like when I have money, I'll start a whole new collection of like
0: large format art books. Yeah, that's a very like Fraser Crane move.
1: Right. You know, yeah. like Because those
0: art books, those like big ones, they're like, you know hundred dollars or whatever if you find right
1: yeah sometimes even more when you're at the museum it's like some of the nicest books in the museum shop will be like 300 bucks like a large format but they're so beautiful you know it's like as far as you can say like oh you haven't seen like you know a monet unless you've seen it in real life but there are books that are just so beautifully printed that they just cost a lot of money so i've dipped my toe into that a little bit when i was living in london i was um I would go to the Tate gallery every once in a while, which is like an amazing modern art museum. It's sort of like the museum of modern art version for London. And I bought two different books there. One was a book that I have called Frida making herself up, which is, okay, what's a Frida show? Calo. Yeah. It was a show about Frida Kahlo. And this is an, this is a unique book because, um, the show was about actually, it was a, they do like a tour of her clothing. Like, It's not it's not her paintings, it's her clothing. And uh, she also sewed like all of her own clothes. So the concept of the show is basically that Frida legitimately had the idea that she invented a character, she invented her own celebrity. So like she was like kind of a wacky person to begin with. But then she also there was an element of her celebrity where she acknowledged in her diaries and also in her clothing that she was like a character that she had created. Mm -hmm. so that that's what this book is about it's called making herself up and it has like large format pictures uh like really well printed pictures of her outfits some of her paintings and then writings about uh the master herself and then i almost feel like they're related in my mind because there was another retrospective show um at the tate which like completely changed my i could say like changed my art life like it was just so amazing they did a full career introspective of the tape of david hockney the british painter uh and he's painted some famous paintings that you may have seen before but Gotta look that was that was one of the first shows that i went to the shop and there was like the 80 dollar full art book of the show and i bought it and so those are like kind of like my first two like Oh, these are this is like gonna be like the type of collection that I'm starting to work on once I you know get my shit together. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the, that those are two large format art books that I have, and I'm looking forward to having more.
0: Nice. Uh, my next one I've got uh, it's kind of similar. I could have maybe paired them too, but similar to how like how things work. But I have a series of books called uh, "The Golden Treasury of Knowledge," and it's like. It's maybe aimed towards like, like uh, you know, high school kids or something, but mm-hmm. it's got a ton of cool drawings and everything. But it's, you know, instead of being about like industrial processes and machines, it's about, you know, history and nature. And it's the same sort of thing where it's like, you know, it's like a mini kind of encyclopedia. But it the coolest part about it to me is it has no organization at all. Like you just pick a random book and you see the topics in it and there's just no, there's no order. Like if you ever wanted to go find it, you'd have to go look through each one. Like, <laughs> Oh, that's uh, interesting. It's not alphabetical. It's not whatever. So like volume, I got volume two right here. It's Marco Polo, Wales, how our eyes work, irrigation, old and new Indonesia, the first vaccination, plant roots, the Jewish people, sulfur, inland navigation, Charlemagne wow. pyramids of Egypt. That's just, really cool. Know, actually, totally it's all like over the place.
1: It's like a disorganized person who wrote an encyclopedia. Yeah. It's
0: like, uh, <laughs> click a random article on Wikipedia. So. That that's one's cool. That's awesome.
1: Have you ever played that game on Wikipedia that's an internet game about racing to get to the article first? No. It is so fun. I should play this with you sometime. I, I will shout this out on Twitter because um, I'm referencing it without really knowing exactly where to find it right now or what it's called. But there's a browser-based internet game where... You and I can enter like a fo- like a forum or like multiple people like 10 people at a time can enter into random games and the point of it is to go from they give you a wikipedia article and you have to get to another wikipedia article only by clicking
0: without searching. Oh without
1: searching. Nice. So they'll give you like the let's say they'll give you hard drive, like computer hard drive and then you have to get to like gamma rays. Oh, okay. <laughs> And there are that's like sense. strategies for how to get through Wikipedia. It's really cool. But that's what that book sounds like like a weird, yeah. random, like rabbit
0: hole. It's got a rain, yeah. All right, what do you got? Uh,
1: my next book is actually um, a really cool book that I bought. Um, this goes back. This is like our third or fourth reference to our reverence for Frasier, Dr. Fraser Crane. Um, and I actually have a book called In Character Colon Actors Acting by a guy named Howard Schatz. And basically, it's again, it's like a large photography book. I don't know how I ended up getting this when I was like a teenager or something, um, but I've had it for a long time. And uh, it's like a huge photography book of all like pretty famous actors. One of the, one of my favorite photos and it is of Kelsey Grammer, AKA Frazier crane. Um, but there's also like Don Cheadle in there and, uh, there's just like a lot of major actors. And basically this guy, Howard chats, he does a photography book where, um, he's sort of like isolating their craft. So it's, it's just white backgrounds and portraits of these actors, but every page is um, the direction that he gave them. And then like you turn the page and it's like the photograph of like what they did. So like a particularly powerful one, the, the reason the, the photo that attracted me to the book is the one of Kelsey Grammer. is he gives him the direction that you just turned around at a, you know, like at a playground and your grandchild is like, not where he is like missing, you know? Oh shit. So his like face is like, so amazingly, you know, like these are people who are very deep, you know, into their craft and really good actors. So he, it has like a lot of fun and uh, there's a lot of like funny moments, you know, exuberant moments, but it's just overall like a great book to kind of just flip through and just see the power of, of sort of like, a moment that an actor and a photographer can create so cool in it's called in character actors acting
0: nice yeah it's funny how you say like you don't know where it came from because i feel like these sort of books are like definitely legacy books you know they're handed down or like oh yeah either. definitely some, yeah you know, i think
1: i kind of i think story. i might have the 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 closest thing i can remember to getting that actress acting book is i like saw the kelsey Grammer photo and then also saw it at, like on a discount at like when borders was shutting down or something i think that's what happened
0: yeah all right my next one is uh disney's art of animation by bob thomas this is from nineteen ninety one. So it's like I think it was like a gift that I got when I was like a, a toddler or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's really sick. It it talks about it covers like it's not super thick, but it's a it's a big hardcover book, like uh uh, you know. Nice size and all that, it's like a lot of good pictures in there, but uh it's just talks about the history of like Disney animation and it's you know chock full of production sketches and mock sketches from like early Disney films. And it's got a holographic cover with Mickey, like doing some gestures on it and stuff. Uh, There's, I guess there's a, it's from 1991. And I think that's when uh, Beauty and the Beast was coming out. So Mm -hmm. it's like half the book is about the production of Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) They're they're psyched on Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of cool sketches from what they were, Doing and how they you know put things in motion and uh yeah it's a lot to animation so it's a really cool book
1: yeah animation for sure an amazing an amazing art form and that book sounds like really good cool. there's also I'm I'm throwing out references left and right of things that I'll need to link on Twitter or something but uh, they there's also like a short documentary on I've watched it on YouTube before of the discipline that uh, lots of animators who work for Disney have to have to like all go into like one style, you know, like a film starts with like a style book. And it's basically like even if five artists all would paint a tree differently in their personal styles, then they get this. That's what makes them professional. You know, it's like, okay, this is going to be the style. And then we can all like draw similarly, which is like amazing.
0: That stuff's crazy.
1: Yeah. Uh, my next one is there's this one book that I have I actually don't have it in my possession right now it's back at my grandpa's house Connecticut um, but there's like a book that I have that I feel like it just like changed a very specific like area of my knowledge but basically my whole life my uncle has had like pretty intense aquariums in his house like he has these large aquariums that have some pretty big fish some of them like he like when i was a kid i think one of his fish like passed away but when i was a kid he had one that was like 20 years old like a yeah. catfish or something like that <laughs> and it was like really cool and one christmas or something my uncle gave me i have a book with a blue cover i can't even tell you the author i can't even tell you the publisher but it's basically like a how to aquarium book <laughs> and it's and it's like the basics from the beginning of like You know, and it's it's a good one because it's like it's not trying to get you to like end up with an aquarium where you have, you know, a plastic treasure chest in the bottom and like one fish. It's like it's proper, like actual aquarium building where it's like you put in like this substrate and like that's going to support your plants. And then you plant your plants for like three weeks and like they like acclimate the water until you introduce fish and stuff like that. Um, so it's like a really good, like primer to starting to do aquariums. And honestly, it's come up in conversation and like, I've met a lot of people throughout my life where it's like, oh, you know, like about aquascaping and like aquariums, like we can talk for about something for like a few hours.
0: <laughs> are you ever, are you ever going to follow through and, and make your aquarium?
1: Well, that's the thing. I actually really miss it because I did have an aquarium with two Indian guarami fish in, uh, when I was going to school in Connecticut and the thing about aquariums again I guess this this the intro to this podcast is all about how I'm not fully nested yet but I feel like you have you have to start an aquarium where you basically believe that you're not going to move for a while yeah (laughs) it's impossible you know me I've moved all over the place but yeah that's another thing that I think of like It'll be my like forever home once I start an aquarium and I'll definitely going to have one because aquariums are
0: awesome. Nice. Yeah. I actually have an ocean theme. Or I have a, you know, fish themed book too. Uh, nice. Not the next one though, but <laughs> I'll go out of order. That's fine. I have, a, uh, uh, the ocean world by Jacques Cousteau.
1: It's Ooh. this
0: gigantic, great coffee table book. It's like 25 pounds. Uh, it's just full of, you know fantastic underwater photography and some good writing from Cousteau and it's basically okay. everything there is or was to know about the ocean circa I think 1985
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh I haggled for this one at a flea market so I got it really cheap that's amazing yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, through. I've, I haven't looked I haven't read it cover to cover like it's, it's hard to read a book like that cover to cover but I definitely looked through it a lot
1: uh my next one i would consider my next one is my last one unless i think of something off the cuff but my next one my next one i would consider sort of a combination this is something this is a book that we've talked about in literary tradition just because it comes up all the time but i definitely hunted this down uh i was looking in bookstores for years until i found I don't have it with me right now, again, back in the family archives in Connecticut, but I do have... The vault. Yeah, in the vault. I do have Dante's Divine Comedy illustrated by Gustav D'Or. So I, it's like a relatively thick, large format, probably like double the size or triple the size of like a normal paperback book. And it's the Divine Comedy with all of the Gustav D'Or uh metal like etching illustrations. Which that's how (laughs) Yeah and it's (laughs) autograph. Yeah, yeah. Um so that like that's how I think a lot of people discover Dor is like these amazingly complex things that he did for the Divine Comedy, which is these massive etchings. Um and yeah if for years i was look, like because you'll find ones where some of his illustrations are you know in the middle of the book or whatever or like printed you know blah 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 but this one is a proper like large format one where it will start off like the section with what he what he illustrated for that section and it goes throughout the whole whole divine comedy
0: nice some of those like that you're like oh i wish i could just you know cut a page out and frame it or something. It's like, you need to bring it to <laughs> right. the copy machine or something. Like. <laughs> uh, so I got two more. Uh, first one here is uh, fairies by Brian Froud and Alan Lee. And that's spelled uh, F A E R I E S.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, so this one, it's really cool. It's basically, it's basically a bunch of drawings of fairies and gremlins and gnomes and shit like that. Like a whole right. world of them. And uh, it's kind of like, an encyclopedia of like fairy type things. But the, like that sounds super weird. But what makes this cool is Brian Froud, if you're familiar with the name, that's the guy who designed like all of the characters from Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal. So like you immediately oh. know what his like style is. Yeah, like that's that's, cool. that's the art style that I'm talking about, if you can picture it. um, And yeah, really cool drawings in here. Lots of like surprisingly sinister stuff like <laughs> there's even some nudity in it i think like uh it's kind of crazy but um fun fact the the baby from labyrinth you know toby like the one who gets stolen Mm -hmm. that was brian froud's son in real life oh
1: interesting yeah Yeah. so he does the character and art design
0: and then says steal my baby yeah throws his kid into it (laughs) (laughs) nice um Okay, last one. And here's the one that I really wanted to talk about, like the grand finale, the reason why I thought of this topic. Uh, So I think I showed this to you a few years back, but it's one of my prized possessions just because it's hilarious to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So the story, the background here is I moved into this house in Western Massachusetts like five or so years ago. And the people who had lived there before me, like they left a bunch of shit and they, one of those things was a textbook that just, you know, threw me for a loop. And so I have here a copy of third grade mathematics for Christian living.
1: Yeah. Nice. So, do you remember this? Do you remember? This? Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah.
0: Now I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, math, math is just numbers, right? There's a known mm-hmm. answer usually, uh, especially in basic arithmetic, which this right. is math is just math. Like, how do you have Christian math? Like, how does that even work? And so the answer is you create some truly strange word problems. Uh, so let me open up the book and show you what I'm talking about. All right. I'm going to read some from some random. So papers. these are some
1: basic math problems with a Christian twist.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, on page 23, uh, here's a, here's a, like a yeah, math problem you're supposed to work through. There is one God. He made the earth in six days. He rested one day. How many days was that in all? So that's pretty easy. Seven. God does not sleep, but people do. Keith slept nine hours on Sunday night. On Monday night, he slept eight hours. How many hours was that altogether? It's just like, it's a math
1: problem. It's it's a normal math problem, but then like half of a sentence at the beginning is like, God does not sleep.
0: (laughs) Um, But yeah, like that's like, Maybe half the problems are like that. And the other half are just like, you know, 18 stickers were in a book. The children, oh wait, no, this one is too. 18 stickers were in a book. The children stuck nine of them on their Bible memory charts. How many stickers were there left? Nice. Um, Every, every verse in the Bible is from God. 31 verses are in the first chapter of the Bible. 21 verses are in the last chapter. What is the difference in the number of verses?
1: Wow. Really getting it in there.
0: (laughs) We do not know what will happen in one year, but God knows. How many days is that? <laughs> right. It's funny. It's like a
1: it's like a yeah, there's 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 a lot of those books out there deeply religious sort of, you know, there's probably like a like a Jesus version of everybody
0: poops or something. Yeah. No, like I understand that. I understand all of that, but math? I like, know math. <laughs> <laughs> non-christian math books are not sinister in any way like <laughs> <laughs> well it's just another angle to you know
1: really bake it into them when they're super yeah.
0: young and it's like oh they have to require that so they can sell it right um and the other weird thing about this book is that it's it's for some reason it's also ocean themed a lot of the questions are about the ocean mm. and like the page numbers have like a shell around them and there's like Little pictures of waves and stuff. So love here's to a, here's track a down the
1: story of this publication because, like you said, <laughs> it's probably that someone's following some sort of
0: <laughs> just rule some formula, towards
1: right? yeah to get towards publication with a with a Christian.
0: So the, I found one problem in here that uh, throws both of the themes together. All right, perfect. Anne heard waves splashing every day for one year when her family lived by the sea. That that would be normal, but they lived by the sea to help with a church. how many (laughs) saved it at the very end there and like uh seconds to go how many days was that
1: it's funny that uh i think that one is almost like it it almost seems like it was a book that was all figured out and then they got this religious publisher and they were like okay every single one has to have
0: (laughs) yeah control like apples and make it
1: bibles like (laughs) right exactly exactly Oh, this one, she's living by the ocean. Why is she
0: living there? Yeah. To help with the church. The church side ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sounds so, like yeah. a nice church. Definitely. So, yeah, let us know. Uh, that's our, you know, coffee table books, random books, not cover to cover books. Uh, let us know what you got in your collection because, you know, everyone's got a weird one. that's you know, they got to explain. Right. All right. So I think I'm going first this week. So here we go. Uh, So the book I brought this week is, it's truly demented, but it's very, it's very well written. Hmm. Um, But it will also never overshadow this author's earlier work, as that would be Catch-22, which is one of the more famous books ever. Okay. We're
1: talking Joseph Heller.
0: Yeah. So this is, this is the follow-up to Catch-22 which seems like something that would automatically be doomed for failure in comparison, Mm -hmm. and that may be why he waited 13 years to publish Something Happened, 1974. Okay. That's what the book's called, Something Happened. Yes, Something Happened. And for my money, though, it's just as good, if not better, than Catch-22, which I'm I'm a big fan of to begin with.
1: Nice. I'm sure he would like to hear that because I'm sure he... (laughs) He probably heard, you know, endless, you know, once you publish something
0: like Catch 22, it's always the reference back to that. Yeah. So for this one, I mean, I don't I guess I don't know too much about Joseph Heller, the man, and I didn't really do that much research for this book report as far as the, the guy himself. But I don't know, Mark. Know this sounds like
1: a pretty shitty book report. If you, yeah. you know, you're you starting out,
0: um, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I put in effort elsewhere. Okay. Uh, I just didn't do, you know, dock me some points for that. But um, I do know that he, he did serve in World War II. So that's like, you know, the basis for his writing in Catch-22. I believe he was, you know, similar uh, to, you know, the narrator of, of that book. But mm-hmm. so something happened. It would be pretty sad if, if this is how he viewed his like personal life after world war ii i guess because it's there's not much to it plot wise Mm -hmm. this book like i don't know if you've heard of it before but it's about a businessman named bob slocum and he's just an absolutely terrible person inside his own head and you know he's pretty bad outside too and the whole book are just it's just his thoughts as he goes about his work and his personal life, like no one speaks unless he like sort of introduces it in his head, like, oh, like, I don't know, I I got them to say something or whatever. But it's sort of like a stream of consciousness narrative from this just exceedingly cynical mind. Um, So I read this book in college like a long time ago and I didn't reread it for this week, but I wanted to talk about it. And I didn't know if I'd be able to do it justice, but I just kind of went for it anyways. But it definitely stuck with me. I'm due for a reread, uh, but it's, it's quite long. I wasn't really up for a lot uh, of work this week. <laughs> so as always, <laughs> uh, Wikipedia is here to help us summarize the book in a Absolutely. few sentences. Yes. They, it's very brief entry on this book. While there is an ongoing plot about Slocum preparing for a promotion at work, most of the book focuses on detailing various events from his life ranging from early childhood to his predictions for the future, often in non-chronological order, and with little, if anything, to connect one anecdote to the next. Near the end of the book, Sulkum starts worrying about the state of his own sanity as he finds himself hallucinating or remembering events incorrectly, suggesting that some or all of the novel might be the product of his imagination, making him an unreliable narrator. Which, I guess works as a summary but it's it's kind of focusing on one thing and and not too much else but i don't know sometimes wikipedia kind of does that it depends on who's writing it exactly Um, but that sort of summary reminded me a lot of uh peace by gene wolf where it's kind of someone's memories it's not really certain if these things happened or not and um I honestly don't even know if I picked up on that the first time I read, uh, or the only time I've read something happened. Like I didn't, I don't know if I saw that part where Mm -hmm. he's kind of forget forgetful or or whatnot. So I guess since I always throw questions at you, have you read anything that sounds like this? Anything that's kind of thoughts Mm. of a cynical mind? Just
1: maybe, maybe, uh, Well the whole like unreliable the reference of an unreliable narrator and like memories and stuff like that it always has to be going back to the first thing that you learn about like the style that you learn about for that is like you know like the great Gatsby right like Nick is is like sort of unreliable because he's kind of a drunk but then that also bleeds into who I've talked on the podcast before Ishiguru, he like assumes the mind of I wouldn't say cynical, but probably ignorantly conservative or like ignorant, like, you know, they're very like clammed up people who don't really realize that they're being mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I would say, I would say Ishiguro in a way. It sounds like, it sounds like a meaner Ishiguro. <laughs> okay.
0: That's interesting. Um,
1: so Cause there's so an element I mean... of those Ishiguro books where it's almost like almost giving a little bit of credit to the willful forgiveness of some of his characters, but this doesn't sound like there you get, you have much, uh, you're not getting much credit to the character.
0: Not really. <laughs> uh, so I mean, that's part of it. Like what, what this book really was to me was, uh, what I took away from it, it was kind of, it's an indictment of the American dream and, you know, the modern world, I guess, as far as from 1974's perspective. You know, all that's insane conveniences that are usually, you know, morally corrupt. Um, Like basically Bob, Bob Slocum, he has everything he was after earlier in life, or basically what we're all told is what you aim for. You know, he's got a good career. He's got a nice family, financial stability, whatever. He's got no, he has absolutely no inner life, though. He has no happiness He, you know, cheats on his wife. He lies. He has all these thoughts that are negative about everything around him. And he takes advantage of people. He's really lost all of his goodwill. And you can't really get a grip on where it went because he talks about his earlier life where it's not that way. He talks about the future where he's, like, maybe, you know, improving. Like, you don't really know what what is going wrong. Mm -hmm. And this just, it goes on and on and this is where a lot of people seemingly lose interest with this book. It really does just go on and on about this and he's waxing poetic about, you know, being a horrible guy. Mm-hmm. But it's so well written and it, there's so much actual layers to it beyond that that it I thought it was amazing. And uh, you know, I used to read this in my car when I was like a broke and cynical commuter student mm-hmm. in college like and I think what it does is that it taps into those like thoughts and feelings that you're really just on the cusp of if you're unhappy with your life at the moment. But mm-hmm. he, you know, dives into them and it's um, it's kind of like a uh, release in that way. You're like, wow, I'm not I'm not fucking I'm not like this guy. Jesus, like <laughs> 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 uh, it's easily the most cynical shit I've ever read. And I'm like, you know, I'm a big Ambrose Bierce fan. So right. Bitter beers, even, even more bitter. Uh, Who knew? So I guess, yeah. <laughs> I I guess it would seem that this is, it's, I guess it would seem that it's just the ramblings of like an unsympathetic character. But like I said, there's an awful lot of layers to the um, characters, but also to the events that happen in this book. Like there's one part where he uh, goes to talk to his son's, like the gym teacher, because his son's like not doing good in gym class, he hates, you know, he hates the activities that they do or whatever. And, you know, at, he's simultaneously intimidated by the gym teacher because, you know, he's not athletic, mm-hmm. but he also has this, feels this superiority because he's like, you know, a big business guy. Right. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's trying to do good for his son, but he's also, he wants his son uh, or actually he, he like he, he supports his son and not enjoying gym because he didn't. Right. You know, he also yeah, feels like a, his son is a wimp. Like <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic of like, you know,
1: like parent teacher conferences when you really think about it are sort of like an interesting dynamic. Like you're going to like meet somebody who, you know, you can feel superior to, but you're also trying to help like the same child. It's kind of interesting
0: um but it's just you know it's it's positive stuff it's negative stuff it's like boring banal uninteresting stuff like all all mixed up in one but it's all super super layered and nuanced and everything uh so you know instead of reading a passage from the book itself i wanted to read a little bit of a review for this book uh the most famous review of this book in fact because it's a review written by fellow author Kurt Vonnegut in the New York Times.
1: Whoa. 1974. Now we're we're talking some major, major.
0: Yeah. All right. And based on, I'm going to just going to paraphrase from it because it's, it's very long, but I'll I'll link to it on Twitter. All right. The company that made a movie out of Joseph Heller's first novel, Catch-22 had to assemble what became the 11th or 12th largest bomber force on the planet at the time. If somebody wants to make a movie out of his second novel, Something Happened, he can get most of his props at Bloomingdale's. A few beds, a few desks, some tables and chairs. Life is a whole lot smaller and cheaper in this second book. It is shrunk to the size of a grave, almost. Mark Twain is said to have felt that his existence was all pretty much downhill from his adventures as a Mississippi riverboat pilot. Mr. Heller's two novels, when considered in sequence, might be taken as a similar statement about an entire white, middle-class generation of American males. My generation, Mr. Heller's generation, Herman Walk's generation, Norman Mailer's generation, Irvin Shaw's generation, Vance Bourbiali's generation, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, And and on and on. That for them, everything has been a down, uh, has been downhill since World War II, as absurd and bloody as it often was. Both books are full of excellent jokes, but neither one is funny. Taken together, they tell a tale of pain and disappointments experienced by mediocre men of goodwill. Mr. Heller is a first-rate humorist who cripples his own jokes intentionally with the unhappiness of the characters who perceive them. He also insists on dealing with only the most hackneyed themes. After a thousand World War II airplane novels had been published and pulped, he gave us yet another one, which is gradually acknowledged as a sanely crazy masterpiece. Now he offers us the thousand and first version of the hucksters or the man in the gray flannel suit. There is a Natalie dressed sourly witty witty middle management executive named Robert Slocum. He tells us who lives in a nice house in Connecticut with a wife, a daughter and two sons. Slocum works in Manhattan in the communications racket. He is restless. He mourns the missed opportunities of his youth. He is itchy for raises and promotions, even though he despises his company and the jobs he does. He commits unsatisfying adulteries now and then at sales conferences and resort areas, during long lunch hours or while pretending to work late at the office. He is exhausted. He dreads old age. Is this book any good? Yes. It is splendidly put together and hypnotic to read. It is as clear as hard-edged as cut diamond. Mr. Heller's concentration and patience are so evident on every page that one can only say that something happened is at all points precisely what he hoped it would be. Something Happened is so astonishingly, astonishingly pessimistic that it can be called a daring experiment. Depictions of utter hopelessness in literature have been acceptable up to now only in small doses, in, small, in short story form, as in Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, or John D. MacDonald's The Hangover, to name a treasured few. As far as I know, though, Joseph Heller is the first major American writer to deal with unrelieved misery at novel length. We keep reading this overly long book, even though there is no rise and fall in passion and language, because it is structured as a suspense novel. The puzzle which seduces us is this one. Which of several possible tragedies will result from so much unhappiness? The author picks a good one. Nice. And it's exactly as he says. The title promises something happens, and something does happen at the end of this book that's (laughs) extremely devastating. But I would be wrong to give it away, and you know, right. Wikipedia doesn't even give it away. So
1: that was a really good like lead up that what Vonnegut said is like it's like a, you know, leading up to something, and it definitely like something definitely does happen, but it just like yeah. makes you want to that that's like a good like that one that review sold a few books, I think.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely never, you know, th- this book has a cult following. um, it's obviously has not even come close to Catch-22, but, you know, a lot of people do like this book.
1: But that was I cool what he said. That was, like, really interesting what he said of, like, there's just, like, a whole generation of not only writers, but just, like, people all around the world that it's, like, there was this horrific, like, high of World War Two, And then you're just, like, in, like, a, like, and then everyone is just, like,
0: in a dissatisfied work, spiral. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Very strange.
0: Yeah. So, um, this book review was very lazily done by me, but I think it fits the <laughs> book and you know cynical about it. Hey, uh, so I think
1: that was an A plus <laughs> shitty book report.
0: <laughs> if, thank you. If you liked Catch Twenty Two, this may or may not be a book for you. It's hard to judge. Uh, and that was very evident in the one star reviews that I looked at. Nice. Everyone was like, what the fuck was this? Like, <laughs> I expected Catch-23 or some shit. Um, <laughs> so Stephen Steven says, when this book was published in 1974, there was rejoicing because Joseph Heller, author of the monumental Catch-22, had finally brought forth a new novel. The rejoicing stopped as soon as people read it. Something Happened is a long, deliberately static description of a dull, unhappy, quagmired American life. Only at the very end of this unmeandering, unrewarding, mass produced posit does one thing finally happen. It's a one joke book where the joke isn't even funny. A huge disappointment.
1: Hmm. Nice.
0: Yeah. Not for everyone. It's a great book, though, from my opinion.
1: Amazing. All right. Well, uh,. That was good. I definitely, I definitely check that out. Especially like it sounds like a really cool sort of like. I'm someone who respects tone shifts, like in career, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's like you know he didn't try to write Catch twenty three, and why why would he try? You know, I think a lot of the, (laughs) I think a lot of the world is trying to do that right now. You know, especially the film business is like trying to recapture the magic of of certain things and there's really not any you know it just it i respect a career pivot basically just Mm -hmm. doing something different
0: yeah it's so so different (laughs) yeah that's cool all right so so
1: my question for you this mine might be pretty short this week because what i covered is pretty short but it's also it's pretty cool but um i'm gonna lead off with a question to you mark and I want to talk a little bit, have a little bit of a back and forth before I get into my book about how much has the podcast affected your reading?
0: Uh, a lot, you know. I yeah. need to, <laughs> I got to do a lot of reading like as soon as we're done recording. Right. Because I, I, can't, I can't read something else while I'm preparing. Even if I've finished the book that I'm trying to talk about, I can't read mm-hmm. something else until we, finish recording because it's like I'll like I, – I, I get worried that I'm going to like mix up two <laughs> stories even if they're totally different. Yeah,
1: for <laughs> sure. Also, yeah, I mean I would say it's affected my reading a lot in terms of like choice mm-hmm. because it's like you know just going through the world. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I used to kind of just be like – I would go through periods where I would just be like I'm going to read – You know, I had like a solid year of Mishima once, I think. Yeah. You know, where I was just like, okay, like after I buy that, I'll buy this, you know, on Amazon and just like keep them coming, like all the, like same author. But now I want to provide a little bit of variety. Also, you know, it used to be a thing in days gone by where it was like, oh, like now I'm going to do the thing, like I'm going to read like an Infinite Jest or a Gravity's Rainbow or like something that's like dense and really long whereas now i'm like nope <laughs> i'm gonna like <laughs> like i you know going and actually it's it's sort of like an interesting i feel like it's an interesting um experience to have because maybe i'm dipping we've been dipping our toes into the water of like what it feels like to be someone who does this like as their career i mean obviously we don't do it day in and day out like every day all the time but i used to kind of get like i i don't know if you've ever been frustrated by like there's endless like book reports like book reviews about out there about how like the the reviewer didn't fit fully read gravity's rainbow you know yeah like i've read that like in a few different reviews of of the rainbow and been like that's like bullshit dude like you just gotta like read it and you just gotta like do it but now I think I feel like I like understand like a little bit like if you if you're like expected to do something, you know, on deadlines. Like basically I've been finding that I appreciate a certain l- length of book.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a there's a sweet spot for like a novel that you can read in a week for sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's, you know, what we've been experiencing. So what's your page range? What did you say is like. Um, well, it works for you now. You know, that's actually hard to say because when I was reading In Cold Blood by Capote, I um I was quite fearful of the page range, but the book was so addicting that it did go by in a week, like it was really easy. So I would say that my like target would be like between 200 and 300, but I think any book can break the rule. I think if if, if like you're addicted, then you're addicted and you could probably read like 600.
0: Nice, but it's risky to start if you if you don't know.
1: Right, it's risky to start if you don't know for <laughs> sure. So, on that note of, you know, I read Capote in a week and what how has the podcast affected not only what we read in our daily lives but also what we bring to the podcast? I kind of decided and I've talked about this before about like how I did Ishiguro twice just because I wanted to follow my own reading journey. And for this week, I feel like I'm taking another step forward with just being like, "Fuck it, I can't do like everything like cent- centered around like variety for the podcast and stuff like that." So I'm gonna talk about a single essay, essay by Truman Capote, um, and it's called "A Day's Work," which is in his s collection of essays called "Music for Chameleons." So basically, I was. Okay going back and forth with myself on if I wanted to talk about Truman Capote again, because I had already covered him in, uh, I think it was episode 33. So that's only like two, ago yeah, only two episodes ago, but I was like sort of rebelling against myself because to ask you that question, like how has it affected your reading? And I think that this is my answer because my answer to that question would be like, in a way, almost almost too close for comfort. It's affected it too much, too close for comfort. Like I don't wanna be like not reading the things that I wanna read just because I wanna like, you know, bring a rhythm to the podcast. So, and I think that it's like valid to say that like everyone who listens to our podcast, obviously probably like some version of a hardcore reader. And I think it's valid to say like, you know, follow your own like grooves and go like through your own journey. So uh, this essay, A Day's Work, is published in 1981. And the reason that I got to this essay, out of all the ones that are in this short collection called Music for Chameleons by Capote, is that um, this was an idea that Capote had brought to his editor before he did In Cold Blood. So some of the reviews that you can read or some of the history of In Cold Blood is that he had like an idea, like he goes to his editor and he's like, oh, let's think about doing this like true crime thing and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually he gets sucked into doing In Cold Blood for several years. And the other idea was one that he does after the fact once he's like a famous novelist and he actually gets it published in 1981. And uh, it was an idea he pitched all the way back then. And it's that he spends a single day with a Manhattan cleaning woman he he basically like with his journalistic mind he goes along with a cleaning woman i think it's the woman who he contracted to clean his apartment and he just visits several apartments with her as she goes about her business
0: okay
1: um what i think is interesting about reading this in The context of Truman Capote, because I did talk about in the last episode, in episode 33, when I talked about him, is that he kind of like in cold blood happens and then he sort of like becomes the socialite he always wanted to become. Like he's a very kind seemingly um, extroverted person and basically... I think that some autobiographical details of how like what he became after becoming a famous novelist sort of seep through in this essay called The Hard Day's Work. But basically what he does, he goes along, like I said, with this cleaning woman. It's 1979 Manhattan. It was fun to read because of my own intimate knowledge of New York. So, you know, they go to one apartment that's on East 72nd Street and I used to live on East
0: 70th Street there are a lot of rooms to clean and that's yes yes Holy exactly
1: shit. yeah so i um, just thinking about all these little different worlds to step into and i thought it was interesting you know he you know no he doesn't hold back any details i don't know if he changed people's names for the sake of privacy but he does name the people that they go to first and last like the first uh and it's also interesting because you get a little bit of a personal history he's traveling around with this woman named mary sanchez who um let I'll read like the description of of what he gives like the first paragraph about Mary. So Mary is 57 years old, a native of a small South Carolina town who has lived north the past 40 years. Her husband, a Puerto Rican, died last summer. She has a married daughter who lives in San Diego and three sons, one of whom is a dentist, one who is serving a 10-year sentence for armed robbery, and a third who is just gone. God knows where. He called me last Christmas. He sounded far away. I asked, where are you, Pete? But he wouldn't say, so I told him his daddy was dead, and he said good said that that was the best christmas present i could have given him so i hung up the phone slam and i hope he never calls again spitting on his dad's grave that way well sure pedro was never good to the kids or to me he just boozed and rolled dice he ran around with bad women they found him dead on a bench in central park he had a mostly empty bottle of jack daniels and a paper sack propped between his legs never drank nothing but the best that man Still, Pete was way out of line, saying he was glad his father was dead. He owed him the gift of life, didn't he? And I owed Pedro something, too. If it wasn't for him, I'd still be an ignorant Baptist, lost to the Lord. But when I got married, I married into the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church brought a shine to my life that has never gone out and never will, not even when I die. I raised my children in the faith. Two of them turned out fine, and I give the church credit for that more than me. (laughs) So that's like sort of, I mean, Truman Capote isn't known for do, for quoting things verbatim, but that's the, the lines that he gives uh, Mary Sanchez, literally. And there's sort of an interesting theme through, you know, they like go to clean someone's house who's like sort of a gross guy. He's like an airline pilot who's a drunk. And it's kind of funny. They like go into his house and he's this airline pilot who his house is just covered in, um, you know, like the the little vodka bottles that you can get on an airplane. Yeah. So he's like this airline pilot who's like basically a functioning alcoholic, but there's like these like little airline, like alcohol things everywhere. And that's like what she's picking. That's what he's, you know, what she's picking up after and stuff like that. Um, but what's also real
0: quick was Harper Lee there helping out in the, in the the Yeah, the scenes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The behind the scenes of in cold blood is that <laughs> Harper Lee unbeknownst even capote doesn't even thank her in the fucking book but she was there for (laughs) years helping capote do in cold blood yeah i I wouldn't doubt it if harper lee for some reason wrote half of this and it was goes on college but um but yeah so another interesting like factor of you know they're going into all these little apartments is um mary kind Mm -hmm. of keeps a tin with her where she keeps like roaches of weed and uh she kind of just like smokes here and there like as she's cleaning the rooms and stuff like that and something that i found was that was like sort of the autobiographical detail that i thought was sort of interesting for capote to engage in post being a famous uh, journalist and novelist because he ends up just like, like this essay, I think, you know, back in the days before he did In Cold Blood, he pursues In Cold Blood with this sort of like mega precision of like very dedicated to his craft and like sort of buttoned up in a way and like not really like involving himself with the narrative as much as possible. And then in this essay, which was his original idea from back then, but now he's like a famous guy, he just like smokes weed with her and like, That's like the essay. Like eventually they just like smoke weed in this apartment of this like relatively well off Jewish couple. And then the couple like comes home when the both of them are dancing to the radio and like they're eating
0: cake out of the fridge and shit like that. That's like that's like Bourdain.
1: Right. So it's like it's kind of funny where he just I, I basically put a note to myself at the end where I was like, it's kind of interesting because he could be like blamed in a way when he writes this article, this essay for being sort of like not very journalistic or maybe like too gonzo. Like the, like parts of the essay end up being like his like psychedelic wanderings of being like this weed is really strong. But I also think that the factor of like, maybe he doesn't really have anything to worry about anymore. So he can just go like completely gonzo and be like, yeah, I just smoked weed with this cleaning lady. And then like wrote about, he writes a little bit about his own personal history in New York as they walk through the streets to another apartment. Um, I'll wasn't read he you like a
0: big, wasn't he like a big studio 54 guy? Possibly. Possibly. I think so
1: maybe yeah but but you know you know it's like i just found it kind of interesting like okay like you're not exactly still in the style of in cold blood where you're trying to be like an impartial third narrator you're just like (laughs) gonna like get high and like write about it um this was a cool quote that mary says about weed which is sort of i i found it some i would say that maybe it's a possibility that this is capote's own novelistic writing not necessarily her voice but she says uh they're talking about smoking weed and Truman says, no, it's too early to smoke. And she says, Mary says, quote, it's never too early. Anyway, you ought to try this stuff. Mucho cojones. I get it from a customer, a real fine Catholic lady. She's married to a fellow from Peru. His family sends it to them, sends it right through the mail. I never use it, use it to get high. It's just enough to, to lift the uglies a little. That heaviness. She sucks on the roach until it all but burns her lips. And uh, here is the another paragraph about a page away of when Truman finally gives in and smokes uh, a little bit of her weed. Man and boy, I've dragged some powerful grass—never enough to have acquired a habit, but enough to judge quality and know the difference between ordinary Mexican weed and luxurious contraband like tie sticks and the supreme Maui wowie. But after smoking the whole of one of Mary's roaches and while well halfway through another, I felt as though seized by a delicious demon, embraced by a mad, marvelous merriment. The demon tickled my toes, scratched my itchy head, and kissed me hotly with his red sugary lips. Shoved his fiery tongue down my throat. Every Everything sparkled. My eyes were like zoom lenses and I could read the titles of the books on the highest shelves in the apartment. The neurotic personality of our time by Karen Horney. i me by E.E. E. Cummings. Four quartets, the collected poems of Robert Frost. So basically, you know, at a certain turning point, it's like, oh, yeah, I spent some time with this cleaning lady, but eventually we just got high, kicked out of this apartment and then she like goes home and refuses to take a taxi that he promises he'll pay for And she just goes into the subway and that's like, oh, they also it's really interesting. Like I said, like the thread of her husband and how he just passed away, like as a drunk, like in Central Park. They also go um, to a church. The very end of the essay is they go to a church together, presumably still coming down off of the high. And uh, this is Truman's quote of Mary's final prayer in the essay, which is which is sort of interesting. Dear Lord, in your mercy, please, Lord, help Mr. Trask to stop boozing and get his job back. That's the airline pilot. And I quote again. Please, Lord, don't leave Miss Shaw a bookworm and an old maid. She ought to bring your children into this world. And Lord, I, bring, I beg you to remember my sons and daughter and my grandchildren, each and every one. And please don't let Mr. Smith's family send him to that retirement home. He don't want to go and he cries all the time don't pray for me. I'm already saved. She takes my hand and holds it. Pray for your mother and pray for all those souls lost out there in the dark. Pedro Pedro, which is her husband's name. And that's the end of the essay. So it's just like a cool little like slice of life. But I found it also weirdly like tacked on to the story of all the autobiographical details I've learned about Truman Capote because I just don't think it would have been the same thing if he had tried to pursue it in the time before he was, like, some hotshot novelist, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, you know, what would that essay have been like if his editor said, No, I'm not having you go all the way out to to Kansas for that murder or whatever. I just want you to stay in New York and go around with a cleaning lady. Like, would it have been a 400-page novel that came to be a classic? (laughs) Or would it be something else? Would he smoke that weed if he was more fresh-faced?
0: I think Harper Lee kept him uh, focused.
1: Right. It's all Harper Lee. They might as well yeah. say In Cold Blood by Harper Lee. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, my one-star review for this, I couldn't really find a one-star review for the essay specifically. I could only find oh, it for, yeah.
0: music, for right? music
1: for Chameleons. But That's a someone, great title, by the way. I like that. Music for Chameleons. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, that's the title of one of the essays within within the collection. I haven't read that one yet. Um, What's this
0: one? This one's called A Hard Day's Work. A Hard Day's Work, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: And uh, Melinda from Goodreads, I won't read her whole one-star review, but I did think that she said something interesting. She said, One of my former students said Capote was her favorite writer and raved about a hand-carved, hand-carved coffins, which is another essay in this book. And then Melinda says, let it be said, if you've read In Cold Blood, you've probably read the best of Truman Capote, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I guess I would agree with. It's not that this essay hit me as hard as In Cold Blood did, but it hit me in a different way, which I thought was was equally valid. And I think that he's he's an interesting he's definitely an interesting person to follow, maybe just even with a cynical eye of thinking like, oh, he kind of became like a piece of shit. But maybe that's OK. Yeah. so uh <laughs> thanks for listening everybody this has been shitty book reports you can find us every sunday on spotify soundcloud instagram twitter stitcher and itunes just search sbr the podcast um you can also find us on twitter at sbr the podcast and you can email us uh our gmail account is sbr the podcast at gmail.com send us your comments suggestions corrections or whatever you're feeling and uh have a good week see ya